the Evolved Succeed podcast, where founders, entrepreneurs, business leaders, and experts are interviewed to explore the link between personal and business success. We will also investigate and establish the need for ongoing personal development, accountability, and support. The objective is to inspire you, the audience, to be better in life and in business. Welcome to the Evolve to Succeed podcast. My guest this week is Simon Tolson, owner and managing director of Rumsey of Sandbanks, a high-end holiday rental agency that has been somewhat of a fixture in Paul for the past 70 years. As you'll hear today, Simon's entrepreneurial story and journey is an interesting one. Starting out on fishing boats, then moving to office equipment and corporate sales, before ultimately concluding with his acquisition of Rumsey a company he's been familiar with since his childhood. Simon talks honestly in the podcast about the trials and tribulations and the effect that the financial crisis in 2008 and 2009 had on him personally and on his businesses. And therefore, given the current situation with COVID, I think he's a real honest account and there's lessons in there for us all. So, During the course of the podcast, Simon recalls his preparations for his first job interview. I literally cut my hair off because it was very long at the time. I got a proper haircut and I've never really been able to grow a beard, the truth be known. (laughs) Took the earring out. I went to to Oxfam and bought soup for £3.50. Reveals the severe impact the 2008 financial crash had on his position. Between Northern Rock and Nat West, they were kind of banging on the door, forcing forcing a sale. And in the end, after forced sale of everything, I ended up worth a minus. And how conversely the financial crash actually helped his business. A lot of people realised that a self-catering holiday was actually more fun than they thought. It's a story of resilience and adaptability. I hope you enjoyed this podcast. And if you want to know more about Evolve, then please do go to evolvemembers.com. But for now, let's get on with the show. Welcome, Simon, to the Evolve to Succeed podcast. Nice to be here, Warren. Thanks. Yeah, it's great to have you on. We love to have guests on the podcast that have evolved during their lifetime and their journey. And as I'm sure the listeners will learn during the course of this conversation, that certainly has been the case with you, Simon. Uh, yes, I've had um, several careers and some ups and downs along the way, shall we say. Yeah, well, we'll explore that journey as, as we go through. But what I didn't know until recently is you started life as a fisherman following your passions. How did that come about? Well, uh, since I can remember or since I could walk barely, I've always loved fishing. And um, I ended up doing or attempting to start a degree in fishery science which was because I was told effectively everybody said you had to do a degree but really the thing I most wanted to do was be a professional fisherman for me it was like being a fireman or a train driver or an astronaut or something it was you know something that I thought I probably couldn't dare do but after a pretty feeble attempt at studying after two terms, effectively, uh, I threw it in and went to work as a full-time fisherman, which at the time was everything I wanted to do with my life. Brilliant. That's interesting, isn't it? Because, you know, we can we could probably talk about the education sector for ages, but the, I, I often feel there is this kind of, if you've got a passion and there's a vocation for that passion, you know, and actually does the education system and does a degree add to it, or should you just get on and learn on the job and you know, particularly modern apprenticeship schemes and all of those kind of things, sometimes that's a better route. Uh, would you agree with that, Simon? Well, I certainly would. Of course, there's a place for uh, for academic qualifications, particularly if they lead you to a job you couldn't do otherwise. But you've got to, uh, you've got to wonder whether nine grand a year is a good investment in someone getting a sort of ordinary degree from a middling place that doesn't really qualify you to do anything i think if you've spent the 27 grand on something else and spent three years working somewhere learning a a real skill some some people might well be better off yeah it's a difficult one and it's got to be a case by case as you say and you know if you want to pursue some careers definitely got to go down the academic route which is the right thing but pushing everybody into degrees 
I'm not sure is the right thing as far as I'm concerned. And I'm sort of testament to that, you know, left school at 16, did go on to do further education to become an accountant, chartered tax advisor and all of those things, doing the education, but the education while working. But back to your story, Simon, it, I mean, it was, you were there, therefore. So you were a fisherman. Was this on a day boat? Was this on a sort of out overnight boat? What were you doing? Uh, I only ever worked on day boats, but it was it was long days. So I did a season fishing for mackerel in Cornwall, which is a connection that will come up later when I went on. Okay. I worked on trawlers out of, um, out of pool. But the main thing I did after a while, I, I got to work on a lobster and crab boat that was a day boat, but we were working right out in the middle of the channel. So it was actually four hours each way to get to the gear. So um, when we when we did a day, it was a big day and it was, uh, you know, very dangerous work with none of the sort of safety stuff that you have that you have nowadays. But it produced a sort of mindset and a discipline that's, you know, carried forward right to this day, I think. Wow, that is a long commute. Um, and it clearly is still a very dangerous industry. And you say there it created a mindset in you. What's that mindset? How would you best describe it? Uh, well, first of all, is that uh, getting up early and still to this day, I wake up early every day of my life, even on a Sunday or when I'm on a holiday or whatever, I simply always awake early. And when I've been busy, I've my, I don't work late. I'm not very effective late at night. But if I, I can get up really early and get on with things, and the next thing was because it was a because it was a boat with three of us or four of us. Sometimes it kind of couldn't go if you didn't turn up. So you had to turn up. You couldn't throw a sickie. You couldn't be late. Uh, and in fact, unless you were injured, which happened a few times. No matter how sick you were, you would just turn out and you would never let let the guys down. So you'd, you'd always be in. And the final thing is, it's bizarrely, I think it has a lot in common with kitchens, actually, and things. Although it was, you know, we dressed up as pirates a bit and grew our hair and were indisciplined. The boat was actually had to be a very calm and disciplined place. You couldn't be screaming at each other and you had to be calm in the face of a problem because you know your lives were at stake and you had to um you had to act without you know without losing it or without you know even when you were very afraid you just had to no one was allowed to show it you just carried on and spoke calmly wow so there is some great lessons there isn't there about getting into your own work rhythm you know getting up early getting into your own work rhythm other people work better in the day but i always say you've got to find your own rhythm you've got that sense of commitment to something, to a court, you know, to what you're doing, a sense of discipline and strong communication, I suppose, was the things that that taught you. And it sounds like you're you living your dream, you're living your childhood occupation. You're out there on the sea. Obviously, didn't stay a fisherman forever. What changed, Simon? Uh, well, what changed is that I got married at the old age of 22, and I bought a house like we all did uh, at the time, or you know, everyone I knew did really early on. And the problem was that you sometimes got a great payday on fishing. Yeah, everyone works as a share fisherman, so you get a share of the catch. But the honest truth was there was there was only low wages in it. And then I used to supplement my income by selling fish, uh, either lobsters we caught, but more often I'd buy some fish from Greenslades, the local people. And Greenslades were very nice to us lads because they would give us a margin they'd sell us the fish for less than a restaurateur could okay. could get if they turned up at the at the shop so you could basically buy a bunch of stuff because i knew fish i could pick the best of what was landed that day and then i could drive around restaurants and sell it and make a little make a margin which was sort of my first enterprise if you like uh, on my own your first bit of entrepreneurial spirit shining through simon yeah, that's right. Actually, that's not true because um, my first bit of entrepreneurial spirit was when I was seven, I found out that if you went to the Speedway, the people in the season ticket seats and the posh people couldn't be bothered to queue up and take their glass bottles back. So if you went with a carrier bag, you could 
you could sweep all the bottles up before the tournament <laughs> came, and the next week you'd get enough money back on that to pay for your ticket to go and watch the speedway again. So that was my first business. Wow, <laughs> I started very young. So obviously, it must have been quite a wrench to decide that actually you needed to leave fishing industry behind. What happened next? Well, it was a wrench. Well, I was thinking about I wanted to do something um, different. I need to make some to make some money and. Um, and then my wife was unhappy and she really wanted to be a teacher, but she only had O-levels at the time. So uh, she did her A-levels in a year and then she got a place at Southampton to study. But that meant, of course, if she was going to study to be a teacher, she wouldn't be working. So I'd have to do something. And I looked into starting. I thought I'd try and build the fish business, whatever. And then... I remember exactly a friend of mine said that his girlfriend who'd been a nurse was now a sales rep for some sort of medical drugs or something like that. And she was earning 15 grand and had a company car. And at the time that was, you know, that was a very, very good wage and the car was put it in. And I kind of thought that was amazing. So, and I thought I can sell stuff. So, um, so I went, I decided I'd try and be a salesman. Now, no internet at the time, of course, or no anything. So the way you got jobs was you went to employment agencies. And at the time, they were all in Southampton. So I literally uh, cut my hair off because it was very long at the time. <laughs> cut the hair, cut the beard. <laughs> I got a proper haircut. Uh, I've never really been able to grow a beard, the truth be known. But uh, that's it. You know, took the earring out. You know, I went to Oxfam and bought a suit for £3.50, I remember now. I went to a shoe shop and bought some plastic shoes that were black for a, a few quid, and off I drove out to Southampton. I made appointments with five, I think, five agencies, I remember, and like three of them laughed me out the door. One of them sort of said, oh, maybe we could do something, and we put it in. Uh, and, and one of them had a really... A really good lady there. I wish I could remember her name or thank her now. And she said, oh, I think you've got something, you can do it. And she made a phone call to her contact at Pitney Bowes, which was uh, at the time they were, they were the main equipment company that recruited, that specialised in recruiting salespeople that were not experienced and training them up, uh, and put me on the phone with this guy and said, talk to him, tell him you're keen and you want to go. And I remember now I was talking to him and she wrote on a bit of paper, tell him you're really interested in capital sales. So I said, I'm really interested in capital sales. And he said, all right, well, you, you, I'll see you then. So I put the phone down and said, what does that mean? I had no idea. Um, it, it means selling goods as opposed to insurance. Uh, and so I, got, um, I went off to a hotel a few weeks later uh, to, get, to get an interview for Pitney Bowes. Okay. Well, they were known as quite, I suppose, aggressive selling. And but really strong selling techniques, weren't they, Simon? Uh, I think that would be an understatement. And nothing <laughs> that went on there could possibly <laughs> go on anymore. If you think of all the worst stories you've heard about salespeople and then double them and add some, that would probably be the case. However, I went to this interview and this quite often has happened in life when I've gone to interviews. I thought there's going to be you know, I don't, I'm not sure they're even going to speak to me, but it turns out when I turned up in the lobby, it was full of guys and it was full of guys with sort of broken noses and, you know, <laughs> like, like really not executive types at all. So it turned out I got, I got the job and then they put you through, it was only three weeks sales training, but to this day that really changed, really changed everything in my life because those sort of very basic sales techniques have literally, I mean, uh, not so much nowadays because I'm not quite so much on the coal face, but, but I, I still kind of use them every day of my life. It's really interesting, isn't it? When I left school, and I, as I said, I left school, then did my training, but I started as a trainee accountant on a YTS scheme. Nobody did this sort of training accountancy as a YTS. So they put me on the, with the sales course for the YTS scheme. And like you say, I, I learned skills in that year on this YTS sales course that has just stayed with me about building relationships and rapport and all of those kind of things. And I wonder what would happen if I'd never done that 
sales training course. Sales training can teach you so much, can't it, Simon? Oh, yes, it comes into your life. And then the other thing that happened is that no one told me that selling stuff is really hard and, you know, cold calling is really hard because I'd been working in gales of wind 15-hour days. So as far as I'm concerned, so I can only work nine to five. Well, you know, what am I going to do with the rest of my day kind of thing? So the first week they went out and they said, okay, in the first week, what you got to do, go and bang on some doors, ask who the decision maker is, ask how much post they do, uh, get a compliment slip, write it on. You know, then when we come back next week, you can like, ring them all up and try and make an appointment for the interesting ones. And at the end of the week, the following Monday, we went into the office and we sat down with like 10 people and they said, okay, first of all, fill in this form. Like, how many cold calls did you do? And, like, and the first guy said, oh, I did 40. You know, and they said, oh, no, that's not too good. And the next guy said, I did 60. You know, he said, oh, that's all right. And then one of the new boys said, like, oh, I did 100. And they said, well done. And when it got to me, I said, well, I did 420. <laughs> because like, I, I thought it was my job. I parked my car at nine o'clock. I got out and I banged on doors every day. And I stopped for 10 minutes at 11 and I had half an hour for lunch. And that was I, that was just a job. I didn't understand why, why it was so difficult. So, so That's that work ethic coming through from the fishing, well, isn't it, Simon? It, well, yes, it was. And then and then then it said, all right, now you've got to make phone calls. So, I mean, this was easy compared with hauling pots or cutting bait up or, you know, yeah. uh, all, all the other work I've been doing. So, yeah, I got on the phone and made phone calls. So I wasn't any good. Well, I was learning, but I wasn't any good. But at the end of my first month, funnily enough, I'd sold like, twice as many machines as as everyone else, who, including people who'd been there for, for years because just out of ignorance, really, because later on I learned that doing 10 cold calls a day is supposed to be hard but and making, you know, making 20 phone calls is supposed to be hard, but, but yeah. no one told me that. And so it continued for a while. You, and you talk about selling skills for life or skills for life. For the listeners, have you got two or three sales tips skills well the number one that everyone use is the alternative close so don't ask a yes or no question ask an alternative so say you know would you prefer the red one or the blue one or if you're making an appointment use an alternative and then leave the second appointment open so you can say oh perhaps perhaps we could meet up oh, i could do tuesday at 10 o'clock or sometime the following week so very simple thing instead of saying can i have an appointment you say do you want to say yes or yes and that's um yeah that's the most that's the simple thing to deal with and then uh i think probably after that the next thing they taught us most of all which works uh, still on every case is silence and it's i like to talk a lot so it took me a while and I, to learn it and <laughs> Later on, when I'd be training people, I'd be grabbing hold of their knees under the desk to try and get them to shut up. Because if you if you say, "Oh, if that's okay, can we can we go ahead with that then?" and don't speak, and you just wait, and you're not doing anything aggressive, you look calm, but that silence, British way, like radio silence, is not to have silence. So. You know, the customer will, will feel compelled to fill in the silence and there's a reasonable chance as he'll fill it in by saying, all right, I think that's probably the most basic things that, that will work with everything in life. Brilliant. Thank you. So clearly at this point then, you've, you're, you're, mar- you're young, you're married, you've changed your career, you're succeeding at the selling. So was that then a follow through career in selling for a period of time uh, yes yeah, so i probably um, i'm trying to think now so i was selling stuff from about age 25 uh up until uh, sort of 2001 two so i'm going to try doing some so that's about 15 years yes i sales career what happened was technology arrived and those of us who were salespeople had a lucky break because in the early days, companies that had something technical to sell had technical people who knew how it worked, but they couldn't sell stuff. 
So what they did is they recruited barrow boy salesmen to go out towing a technician around to sell stuff. So, the, you know, they'd answer the technical questions and you'd do the deal. And so all of my peers and everybody gradually, everybody kind of got headhunted and then... So I did a number of different jobs and each time you got a bit more salary and a bit more commission. So till in the end, we were all doing okay. Yeah, life was good. Yes, well, it was all right. Well, you'd think I'd learn because um, I did manage I did manage to go to negative equity in the 89 housing crash. But no, man, we got back again. And then round about the turn of the century, I started... Uh, buying a couple of other properties and then the big life change moment came when I bought a holiday home in Cornwall right and that was that a life balance kind of change or was that seeing opportunity change uh, no well it was only that previously when I changed job I'd had a uh, a month gardening leave and I said to my wife all right well we'll go and why don't we go down to Cornwall you know We'll rent a really nice house, you know, I've got to pay off from here and I'm getting the job in here and not knowing anything. I This was, you know, July and no internet again then. So I rang around lots of people and said, rent me your finest house, young man. You know, don't worry about what it costs. I'll, I'll you know, tell me what you've got. And everybody to a man said, yeah, we don't have anything. It's August. Like, <laughs> you know, <laughs> do, do you want to come next August? Was, was And I thought, Oh, right. So eventually I found one place that got on the market late and we went to it. And that's what made me think, well, this seems all right. And, you know, perhaps we should, um, perhaps we should buy a holiday home. And I loved Cornwall when I worked there. Uh, and so, uh, I went and bought a very cheap, not very attractive house. And at the time prices in Cornwall were very cheap. In fact, I think I paid, I've got an idea. I paid 65,000 for it and it was a, it was a sort of terraced, terraced rundown, but not very attractive house. But it did have three bedrooms, you know, and it was in a very nice village in Cornwall. So it was lettable. <laughs> yeah, so that's right. And then I started started looking at letting and bits, and we did it up a bit. And then I, I don't think I had an account at the time. I'm not sure how how it came round. And I'm inclined to do things myself, so I looked it up, and then. It turned out at the time that money you spent on your business renovating it and a holiday cottage was was a full business at that time, you were allowed to offset against other income, including PAYE. So the 20000 I'd spent doing up the property, I put it on my tax return and I got an £8,000 tax rebate. Good chunk of it back, well, yeah. Well, that doesn't make any sense. And then I looked it up and it said, and when you sell it, you get entrepreneur's relief, so you pay 10% tax. And so I thought, well, that means even if you don't make any money, then you make some money because you get more of the renovation back. So if you broke even when you sold it, you'd get the tax relief out and the um, and you'd only get a small amount of tax out. And so I thought, well, that's pretty good. So I think I'll throw the dice and do it again, but on a much bigger scale. Okay. So I bought I bought a house on the seafront in this village and one behind it, and then I bought I bought another house behind that was run down and did them all up, put the uh, put the bills in. Sure enough, this time I got forty thousand quid back in a check. And in those yeah. days, it literally was a check. You got a piece of paper. And they did. They used to send them out, HMRC, didn't they? I remember. Yeah. So, I a, so I had a check for like 42000 for, but I hadn't lost any money. I'd made money because, you know, the, the money, the 100000 I'd spent had added, you know, 200000 of value to the properties. So I just thought, this doesn't make any sense. And it played on my mind. And um, in the end, although I was doing all right at work, the, the sort of entrepreneurial itch to do my own thing was there. So then I had the bright idea. I thought, well, I'll start a business and I'll help people to buy houses in Cornwall where prices are going up and we'll do them up and we'll get them the tax back and uh, it'll be a great investment and we'll run it as um, we'll run it effectively like an investment class. Yeah, makes sense. 
I teamed up with a with a, a very good friend of mine who runs financial advisors, and I ended up I was effectively a little department. So when someone came in with a happy problem, they'd sold their business or they inherited some money, and they'd go and see the pension guy, and they'd talk about different investments and equities and unit trusts and gilts. They'd say, "Go down the road and see me," and I'd say, "Well, why don't why don't you put quarter million in it to work?" buying a property and I'll explain how it works. You get the tax back and you get a bit of fun. You get a place in Cornwall you can use and a nice house with sea view in Cornwall is probably as as good a place to park your money as any. And quite a lot of people agreed with me. Some, some real value building in those properties at that point in time, I'd imagine. Exactly. So at this point, uh, I, I'm, I feel like I'm doing pretty well because I'm sat on all these positions rolling forward so we continued to ramp it up. And as a lot of people did then, I bought a bunch of properties myself and I bought myself a whacking great house with a Northern Rock um, 85% mortgage uh, and built my portfolio. And in theory, on paper, yeah, I was doing quite well. What could possibly um, go wrong, sorry? What could possibly go wrong, exactly. And then, of course, 2008 arrived and things did go extremely wrong because property values went down. Not only were my own properties that were highly geared because we borrowed off ones that went up to make the next one, not only did my entire portfolio end up effectively worth zero because it was underwater, of course, all those fabulous positions I was holding in clients' properties also evaporated. So that that basically meant I went from you know, a little bit on paper to um, uh, to kind of nothing at all. And having worked two, three years for no return, because I assume, yeah, in that innovative way of being paid, which, yeah, um, again, yeah, on paper exactly. sounded great, meant nothing at that point, did it? Uh, it certainly did. And then in after the crash, in the autumn of 2008, Gordon Brown announced that the ability to offset losses against other income was going to be taken away because we we were being forced his excuse was we were being forced to toe the line with the European Union and give you know which because that wasn't allowed in other countries uh, and so the entire not the entire basis of the business but a big chunk of it was was also eroded so basically the game was up wow so within a 6 month period or so your life was transformed. Yes, it was. Well, so so at this point, I started selling the properties to try and to try and get out. But of course, as it progressed, they were getting more underwater, and you weren't allowed to sell if you obviously if you didn't clear the mortgage. If if you said you want to sell, then it wasn't going to clear the mortgage. You became in the bad bank side of yeah. Northern Rock and Nat West, and if you were in the bad side, basically they they thrown the towel in on you, so they continued to charge high interest rates and they didn't want to listen to any settlement or any proposal. So uh, between Northern Rock and Nat West, they were kind of banging on the door, forcing forcing a sale. And in the end, in, in the end, after forced sale of everything, I ended up worth minus, <laughs> minus money. So I had minus no money at all. So... And still trying to support your clients, I assume, who are in difficult positions as well. Yes. Well, the clients weren't doing too badly. And what I'd done is set up for letting the properties out to give them the income. Uh, instead of giving that to an agency, we'd kind of set up our own agency, which was a bit of a loss-making service. But it was because I wanted to keep control over the client experience. And so at the end of that, it turned out, and I thought, I, I thought, well, I'll have to do something different. And uh, I tried a lot of different things and I considered going back to work, including a great lesson in what not to say in an interview. <laughs> okay, well, you're going to have to tell us this story. Well, uh, as part of deciding, I looked at different things to do, but I thought it's no good. I might just have to go back to work. You know, all my peers at this point are earning proper good money. Yeah. You know, six-figure salaries selling high-level software. So I rang around my network, and one of my old managers was managing a team of people 
a company that sold call center solutions. So basically, if you want to set up a call center, they did the entire technical solution for the call center. Big deals. And they big were earning really, yeah. really big money. In the team was someone who used to be a colleague of mine, was in the team who was the second best salesman in the team, and he was absolutely tearing it up. So that was all looking good. And so I went up for an interview, went and met the, you know, my old boss's boss and showed them my sales credentials and everything. And they said, oh, yeah, you know, yeah, you're exactly like our kind of guy. But they said, that's great. Okay, you know, you can come here. And that's how I thought, well, that's my life's going to change. I'm going back to work for the man. But, you know, I'll be well paid. I'll get a car. It was all, you know, it's going to be a great job. But they said, we are, um, we are an American company, so you're going to have to go down to human resources and make sure you're a cultural fit with the company, apparently. Uh, but he said, don't worry about it, but just go down. Uh, just go and sort this. Now, bear in mind, I'm in ultra hyped up mode at this point. I'm super aggressive. I'm a salesman. I've been in front of these guys saying, I've lost everything I own, so you will never see a sales effort like I'm going to give you. You know, and they're, they're all, yeah. I've made it great. So I go down to HR and it's a, a young lady, and I remember just a young lady called Felicity, who's in her early 20s. And she starts going through a bunch of questions. What sort of animal do you think you'd be like? And <laughs> Very what, American. <laughs> what one word would your friends use to describe you? And uh, she said, OK, tell, tell me about something successful you did. And I said, well, I think the most successful thing I did was the last month of the year, I was a bit behind for the year, but a guy who was a good friend of mine was well ahead of me. So I was running and some other guys, so I was running like third. And the prize for the top salesperson in our division was to go on. They did corporate trips for the top salespeople. And the trip that year was a safari to Zimbabwe and Botswana with your wife and proper high end that I really, 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 really wanted to go on. So I said, anyway, I called in all the favours, did everything. I went through it. And at the end of it, I'd done one of the biggest months in the history of the company. I'd overtaken everyone and I won the holiday. And she great. said... Great, off, off to safari land. <laughs> yeah, so she said, yeah, so well, safari land's great. And she said, um, so can you give me an indication? Of how, did you, how did you do that? And I said, well, you know, when you hear a serial killer wakes up in his apartment and he's just surrounded by body parts and he's no idea quite what happened, but it just happened. I said, it was a bit like that. So, <laughs> so she kind of looked at me and said, okay, well, thank you very much. And uh, we'll let you know. And I was 20 minutes down the road before the guy rang me up. He said, look, like, I'm not sure what happened, but we've been told you're not fit for the company culture, so we can't employ you. <laughs> oh, dear. So that's your third kicking, really, then? Um, it, the time. it felt like it at the time, but as with so many things, I mean, I'm a glass half full of champagne yeah. kind of guy, and with hindsight, I think all of those things, I needed teaching a lesson in proper living a proper life not living on the living too high on the hog and if i'd gone down the work route then i'd have never continued running a business which which i love so that's an interesting term you use just then leading a proper life what does that mean to you i think uh, towards the end i was living a life which i've met many 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 of people who have been there where you're buying a lot of stuff and like, in all honesty, you don't really know why. Like, like you know, had a bunch of nice cars and a great big house. And I, I remember a number of things. I, it'd be our anniversary. So we'd go for a hotel in London, you know, and say, Oh, we'll have, we'll have some tea. We'll have some, I remember one things that stand out. So I'll have some tea and I said, Oh, have you got any cake? And they said, Oh, we can do afternoon tea in your room if you like, sir. And we said, great. And they come up with a trolley and we picked some tea and sandwiches off the trolley, whatever. And they gave me the ticket and it was like 84 quid, you know, plus 10 quid, I think, for serving in the room or something. You know, there was stuff that was... Superfluous to real life. Yes, that's right. Stuff that I'd, you know, given given I'd, given I'd 84 quid was probably two weeks shopping for me, not, not 
that many years ago. It was, you know, it was it was going on, and and, and it was lots of stuff I didn't really need, and there was the real case of just being rebased in life and getting your feet firmly back on the uh, yes, tree. put it in. So, uh, of course, when you get there in life as well, what the other positive thing is, you find out who your friends are, and it turned out I had a lot of great friends. So, one of my friends rented us a modest three-bedroom house with one bathroom. And by this time, I've got two strapping sons uh, for us to live in. But they and they said, don't worry about it. You know, pay the rent. But if you can't, just let us know. Uh, another friend of mine gave me a free office to work out, try and work out what I was going to do. And uh, I'm not naming these people because they wouldn't want to be named but because they didn't do it for any reason other than they're really great people. And my solicitor when we started to get into trouble that i've been using for 20 years said oh, i'm sorry to see you so excuse guys um, i'm going to act for free for you now whilst you fight northern rock and nat west through the courts to stop them repossessing the houses and didn't do any good in, you know eventually we sold them all but we were underwater but he fended them off and he worked for nothing and wow. I, i'm not sure you see many solicitors doing pro bono here for clients but um wow. So it was comforting to find that I had a lot of people who helped me out. And then whilst I was looking for stuff, I, it turned out that we had effectively had a little agency with 25 properties. And this was the agency that you had been using to serve the client properties. Exactly, yeah, it served the clients and a couple of, you know, a few people that weren't, that I didn't buy their property had kind of joined because I'd met them or we'd seen what we're doing. So I thought, oh, well, until I can find something else to do, we might as well. I might as well get on and run this then. I got up super early every Monday morning and drove to Cornwall, which was three and a half hours. And I came back normally on Wednesday night and ran ran the business, you know, ran the business from there. Initially, um, initially I had no office. Uh, and then it turned out that, you know, the whole sector was kind of, you know, I think there's a theme here. I th- it, it boomed in the recession uh, because I think, like, was I mean, for different reasons now, but the whole that was when that first word started being used was two thousand eight nine was that staycation. Yes, exactly. Well, we we won't spend on you know we won't spend a fortune going abroad. We'll 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 go to England this year, and hopefully, and we'll come to this. What happened, I believe, is that lots of people worked out. Do you know what actually? That was really, I know we didn't get the blazing, it might have got the blazing sun or they might not, but we we drove, it was no hassle, we could take the dog, the kids had a fantastic time on the beach. Do you know what? Just buying some stuff and cooking it and eating out easily was much better than drag arsing down to breakfast every morning in the hotel. And I think a lot of people realised that a self-catering holiday was actually more fun than they thought. Yeah, particularly if you're in some fantastic properties down in Cornwall. <laughs> yes, which we which we did, and more importantly, part luck, part judgment. I bought these places, most of them in a town called Porth Leven, which was a really nice place when I bought there. But it started to become like really nice restaurants opened up there, and people living a dream. So it started to become a very a bit foodie orientated and a bit a bit posh Cornwall on the south coast as as Rock and the others filled up. So I had a bit of luck in. The location I picked, and then of course being me as well, I, I just went full on mad trying to. Once I decided that was the business, trying to grow the business. So, and and innovate. I understand, Simon. Really, do something different. Yes. So I did. Yes. Well, it was early internet days, and you know everyone was just getting to grips with it. So um, the business was called Above Beach Cottages. And the reason I picked that name was at the time, uh, most of the inquiries came from a site called Cornwall Online, which is a pretty crude site. So we didn't actually have a website. We just had adverts on Cornwall Online and they listed the, they listed things in alphabetical order. It's a bit like A1 drum drain cleaning. I, I just picked a name that began with that. Yellow Pages days. Yeah. Yes, that's yeah, no, that's exactly right, and that's why that's where the original um, name came from. And then the whole industry, there was a lot of competition, but it was all it was all dated and being run by sort of people who weren't doing any internet and weren't and 
and also didn't have the mindset. So two things happened. First of all, I said, right, we've got to get, a, I mean, I know it sounds stupid now, but right, we've got to get a website and we've got to get one that works. And at the time there was no, there was no WordPress or anything. And it turned out I bumped into, and I will name names here, Paul Tansey, who runs Intergage, who'd been a couple of years below me at school. And I, I wasn't looking for it, but he said, he said, well, you've got to be able to like amend your own website because you can't afford to pay technicians to everything. You know, if you want to, do this search engine optimization everything you've got to be able to do it yourself and oh he was so right and intergage had a policy of teaching i would say in fact here's a very a very apt phrase teaching their clients to fish so instead of saying if you want to do seo yeah you know you need to employ us for like three man weeks to do it and that's going to cost a fortune which they knew you couldn't afford they'd say no let's you know we'll set you up so far now, this is what you have to do. The second thing that was different, which now we all know, we talk about lifetime customer value and an owner in a holiday agency is a very, very, very valuable asset because uh, first of all, once you get them on the books, the income you get from them is consistent and reliable once you set the price right. And owners just don't shift agencies. And you have to really, really, really try to lose an owner to another agency. They might sell the house or move into it um, because it's a huge hassle to go from one agency to another and cross over the bookings. And also just because, you know, once they pick someone, they go there. So, But doesn't that make growth a challenge? It's great that you got retention, but you wanted to grow the business. So surely growth becomes an issue, doesn't it? Yes, it did, except... Uh, in the end, we worked out the answer. So while we started off being cheaper and undercutting, and I thought, this is great. There's all these lazy big agencies charging 20% and they're booking only. So we'll do full service for 20% or if they want booking only, we'll do 12 and a half. And surely this time next year, we'll have, you know, dozens of properties join us and nobody joined. And the one or two people that came, I've got a feeling that, the other agencies were delighted to have them out the door because the only people who changed were really awkward squad. If you if you believe in your service and you believe in what you do, never compete on price yeah. alone. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So uh, so then the only growth we were getting was from new properties. In other words, people that were people that were buying a new property. So then we worked out right. Well, the key is to focus on people buying properties. And if you get them, you'll get them for life. So we changed our marketing focus to hustling all the estate agents and saying, look, you've got someone looking for a holiday, get them to us for a chat. We will explain how much they can earn and we'll tell them all about the tax situation, which they nobody understood at that time, but that was, that was still quite, it still to this day remains quite attractive. Yeah. And so by shifting the focus to new properties, we competed. And most of the time, we weren't competing with anyone else because we'd started speaking to the people before they'd even bought a property. And then we they were in London. And if they saw something they liked, they'd say, oh, no, we'll go and have a look at it and tell you, you know, whether we think it's worth doing. And we did loads of stuff helpful. Then it turned out when it came to signing up, they didn't haggle because they were so happy with what we'd done. Brilliant. So growth then occurred. So, yeah, so obviously over a number of years grew the agency. Yes, there was some smaller agencies in the town that we were able to acquire. And um, with each, uh, with a couple of acquisitions and with, with each of those acquisitions, they were small. Well, one person was retiring and their son joined us with the numbers and another uh, another was someone who was, it was quite small, so he was struggling to do it themselves. So he came and joined. So we not only did, it's a bit like the tech in a tiny bit, the tech aqua hire. So not only, not, not only did we acquire the properties on the portfolio, then we acquired like someone to cope with the growth who would run and still maintain the relationship with the owners. So that, that worked really well. Brilliant. But you did end up selling the business. So when did that occur, Simon? In, 2016, 
we were changing booking system and the company that provided the booking system was actually a large national company that was acquiring businesses. And um, there's a bit of backstory here before we go there is that um, Rumsey Holiday Homes on Sandbanks is a business that I've been driving past for 15 years ever since in the game thinking if only I could get my hands on that, what I could do with it. And we tried to approach it. it was owned by a property company in Bristol and there was a manager in and like we tried to approach them. And I've heard from lots of people since that many people tried to approach them to see if they wanted to sell some who, some who just wanted the shop so they could open estate agents, but they'd just gone along. So I'd forgotten about that. So I sat down with the guy and I said, look, I know you'd like to, I've had a look at your portfolio and we fit in a gap exactly you know, where you're not. So I know you'd like to buy, but the business is still growing and frankly, I haven't got anything else to do, but we can talk about it. And I said, I might establish, I might try and start something in pool. And then if I can get any traction on that, then I'll talk about selling. And he said, well, funny you should say that. We're just, um, we're just in the process of looking at buying an agency in pool. I think we weren't going to bother because it was too small. Don't know if you know it, Rumsey Holiday Homes. <laughs> coincidences that happen in life hey eh? uh, yeah and so i said well now we're talking if you sell me that i'll sell you this yeah and these things are not simple and terms of engagement and due diligence and all those many things because i have to be honest i ran a pretty not very disciplined business my speciality is selling stuff and pushing and growing the business and growing the income, controlling costs and uh, <laughs> running a disciplined environment. For that Systems team. and processes behind are different. But yeah, if you've got that sales mentality, that's often the case though, isn't it? You're growing. Something. Compassion is about the growth. Some people can do both, but we, we including you, Warren, I suspect, but not me. Yes. <laughs> But in the end, and I think I think the guy that was doing it was really was really good because he was one of the one of the owners, the family that owned the company, and he just really wants they wanted it. So eventually, we got it done, and I'd lucked out massively because I got a business in pool that was on its knees, admittedly, but it worked out relatively cheap. And with with that was like part exchange, and the difference in cash was enough money to buy a house again or to buy most of a house again with a small mortgage. So I ended up, after 10 years of renting, I ended up owning owning a house and owning a, a business in pool, two, 10 minutes away from my house instead of three and a half hours. Uh, and so then it started all over again with a business, you know, that wasn't running very well. Yeah, but that was great. it must have been quite traditional, old-fashioned in its approach and the way it serviced its customers. Uh, I think that would be the understatement of the century. Yes, it was. It was run like some long lost outpost of the army in 1972 or something. Yeah. Um, and I always say that the best example of this was when I turned up. Is that um, uh, at the time most people arrived on a Saturday, and uh, when I came, there was a sign on the shop that said Saturday closed twelve till three. Okay. Uh, <laughs> uh, <laughs> that's a bit strange. What's, what's that about? And I said, well, you can't open on a Saturday because um, on a Saturday those times because people start ringing up or, or turning up asking if they can get in early. And, and it's, you know, it's, it's just no good. So what we do is we turn the phone to answer phone uh, and we lock the doors and put the blinds down and then – we open up at three o'clock. And I said, well, doesn't that mean there's a queue of like really grumpy, upset people outside? And they said, well, yeah, it can get a bit, and when it's busy, it can be a bit like that. And I said, aren't quite a lot of the properties ready for three o'clock? And they said, well, yeah, they are. And then I said, don't I pay someone to be here all day Saturday? And they said, yes, but she's not allowed to do anything. She has to either sit in the office behind the blinds or go for a walk for three hours. Uh, but she's paid for that. Yeah. Oh so, so that was probably the best illustration of how easy it was 
uh, do something different. And, and I suppose your methods and that you'd applied down in Cornwall were the polar opposite of that, aren't they? They were about client service, opening up, being available, being full service. So old Ramsey didn't answer the phone after five o'clock or didn't answer emails after five o'clock and didn't answer at all at the weekends, even on the either Saturday lady that they had in didn't do computers. So there was if you sent an, if if you called or sent an email at five fifteen on Friday, you got an answer on Monday. So in in our business, the the weekends Sunday is the biggest booking day of the year. Uh, we've all got time to do that, haven't we? Whatever we're doing, yeah, exactly. when everyone you 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 have a look in the week while you're at your desk at the office and you're on the or on the train home and you you know you're you look at it in the evenings and then Sundays when you get a chance to sit down and book. So you might have a question. So, so it was an easy open goal, uh, except it turned out that in recruiting owners, the it's taken me a little while because the market is actually very different here. Okay. In what way is it different? Well, many owners in Cornwall, or most of them, tended to be sort of professional people who wanted a second home in Cornwall and what they would do would they'd have enough money to put the deposit down and they'd mortgage the place up, but they very much uh it was all about they needed the income because they you know they they said, Well, I've got to break it even or it can cost me a little bit, but you know, you've got to deliver the income and they were very focused on uh how much rent they could get and that sort of thing. And it took me a while to realise that that isn't the even they might not admit it, but that for most of our owners here in Sandbanks, that isn't the main focus. Right. And so, what's their main focus? Well, a typical journey for uh, an owner to join us is someone who made some money, bought a second home in Sandbanks, whether it be an apartment or a huge house, and they don't let it out because why should they? Because they don't need the money. So it turns out the competition here is not other agencies. The competition is not letting it out at all. Okay. So it takes a have, different approach, doesn't it? Yes. So we have to set out our stall. Uh, first of all, yes, we still focus on the tax benefits and the income and the different things that you get in terms of um, finance on the place. But most of all, we focus on being more than full service, being ultra service and when you learn sales stuff over the year, like illustrating things for people is the way forward. And what you do, the picture you paint, and this is how we go by, is I'll say this on the, uh, you said what we're doing, you get full service so you can hand your house over. Yes, you'll have guests in your house, which you might not have wanted in the first place, but you'll never have to worry again. When you arrive to your holiday home, it will be clean. There'll be linen in the beds. If you want food in the fridge, you can have it. And you'll never come down to a surprise and find there's been a leak and you haven't been down for three months and it's a bit, you know, it's all a bit dank and you spot things that need fixing. Then you won't have to have those meetings with the gardener and electrician and all those people that are eating into your holiday or your weekend. And then when it's time to go, what would happen is most of the owners that we work with are like self-made people who don't like spending money unnecessarily. So, yeah, if a footballer buys a house in San Max, they'll never let it out and they'll have a concierge company and they'll spend ten or 15,000 quid a year just having it looked after. My owners are not like that. So Sunday morning, uh, their, their wife would say, come on, everyone out of bed because I want to get the washing round, get the linen dry before we leave this evening. And then the next weekend they'd say, should we go down? I say, oh, do you know what? I don't think I'll bother. It's just too much aggravation. Too much work, too much hassle. And then, and then we say, okay, you can use as many because traditionally there would be restrictions on how many weeks uh, an owner was allowed to use their holiday there. So we've always said from the start of the business, no, there's no restrictions. Use the place as much as you like; it's your place, and you and your guests will be treated the same as paying guests. So if you send your sister down and she can't work the telly or the toaster's broken or the heating there's no hot water they won't be ringing you on a Saturday evening when you're about to go out to dinner to try and sort out and get hold of the plumber you won't even know about it we'll just take care of it and 
because I know when I'm talking to an owner that that will have happened to every single one of them. They'll have given their house to someone as a treat and then I've got a phone call saying, I can't work out how to do this or this isn't working. And it does, it's a bit like first class on aeroplanes is ridiculously priced for the amount of small niggles it takes away, but they're, they're very large in people's minds. And that's the, that's the key to marketing to people who don't really need the rent is to sell the service. Great example of for all of us in business about understanding your customer and understanding your niche and understanding where you fit in the market there, Simon. But surely I just, you know, before we go on to a few quick fire questions to sort of finish off, I'm interested to see what the impact of technology is. You you talked earlier about, you know, you being an innovator in technology and with the websites and the search engine optimization being something that enabled you to succeed. But surely you've now got the impact of things like Airbnb and you know the online booking agencies that are just disrupting the industry completely. Uh, yes, they are. They are really disrupting the industry for the old school people who didn't provide the service. But we're, I would say, not completely unaffected, but. Um, uh, the impact, and we, we have used Airbnb. We've actually, demand is so high at the moment that we've switched it all off because there's no point in... in paying that kind of percentage when you can find the bookings yourself. Yeah, it, it, exactly. And also the, 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 the customer experience through Airbnb has not been as good. But, uh, I mean, people always say to me, you're a dinosaur. And, yeah, and Air, Airbnb works really well if you don't mind answering your own emails dealing with your own guests, organising your own cleaning, doing your own caretaking. And yes, if you've got a little investment flat that's next door to your flat or you live in, you know, you live in pool and, you had a, uh, and you've got another flat in pool that you want to Airbnb and you can nip round and clean it yourself and save the money or, you know, or you can have a, just a cleaner on their own because if they don't turn up, then you do it. That's fine. But none of our, none of our owners are able or willing or want to do any of that work. And so there's absolutely zero chance of... I get it. It comes back to understanding your customer. I suppose I can't leave the podcast and with your industry in particular and what's happened in 2020. Obviously, I'd imagine the summer period has been great for you at Rumsey's, but must have been some uncertain times going into lockdown? So. Uh, well, slight understatement because we didn't know what was coming. So we were suddenly staring at a barrel. When lockdown started, it was frankly, well, I say terrifying. I'm a very calm person. So I yeah. was thinking, well, it's going to be interesting to see how, you know, how this is going to come out. It uh, would be a bit of a shame if I had to lose everything I own again. But, you know, yeah, I'll get through it. First of all, we tried to resist a bit and say, you know, look, we can only give you a voucher because we didn't know what was coming. And, of course, you probably remember immediately after lockdown on the telly, there was all the Martin Lewis's of this world and everybody were just getting on saying, no, you're entitled to a refund, insist on it, evil, evil companies, you know, keeping your money. But the the problem we had was that we, we didn't have the money to refund uh, because we take our commission out of the deposits and – that's what when people pay and that's what runs the business through the whole winter when, you know, we've got a very small amount of people staying. And that's a perfectly normal way to do things because, you know, you get the odd cancellation, but, you know, you couldn't envisage any circumstances when all of your houses would be shut. I can't imagine even if you had a, even if you had a fire across sandbanks or a storm or something, it would only knock a percentage of them out. So nobody could have planned for that. However, the government, you've got to hand it to them, you know, we've furloughed people. Uh, we didn't qualify for a C-bills uh, because we posted a small loss in the previous year, which meant that we weren't considered a viable business, but we got a bounce back. And, we, you know, we lived on. And then basically, while we were locked down, every week, every week was costing us because we'd have to refund you know, we'd have to refund another week's worth of deposits and things were going down. And it was, we were saying, well, if we lose April, that's okay. If we lose May, that's, oh, that's going to hurt. If we lose June, that's really going to hurt. 
which we did. And if we lose July and August, like it might be over or we'll have to, you know, something. Something drastic would need to change. Drastic would have to happen. But it, uh, it turns out that two, two things coincided. The government started giving an indication that, that we'd be open again at the end of June. And VE, the miracle of VE Day. So Okay. So what happened on VE Day, everybody celebrated it was that bank holiday. We should have been full, of course, and we weren't, but people did it at home or whatever. And then everyone got up on Saturday morning and said, we love our country. We'll bally well get on with things and book a holiday. And the website traffic that had been on the floor literally that day Saturday after Friday VE Day, that the next Saturday, the traffic on the site went back to where it would normally be. And then subsequently in the coming three or four weeks, over the coming three weeks, doubled from where we it was the previous year and has remained at uh, approximately twice, <laughs> twice what it was ever since then. So... And I assume you've now got an extended letting period this year when normally it would start to slow down. Uh, yes, we we, uh, we always sell July and August anyway, but we sold, yeah. you know, we sold everything out at, at full price. September, which normally would be perhaps 60 or 65%, was a virtual sellout. And then uh, October is which normally would be nearly empty. The first couple of weeks of October are, are at you know, 50% occupancy. And bookings for 2021 are three and a half times higher than they were for 2020 at this point last year. So we're now on a complete roller coaster in the other direction. Wow, brilliant. So some quick fire questions to end, Simon. Sure. What motivates you? Ah, uh, well, that's a it's a difficult question because I'd have told you money when I was younger, but it's not really true. You've learned that one. Yes, that's right. I love working with my team and uh, anything that's worth doing in life has its ups and downs and is difficult. And so uh, I think focusing on a goal, I think like keeping the numbers going and growing the business is a challenge that it's a challenge that never goes away and it's like it's like any sporting challenge or a marathon or something that you want to do it motivates me and I had the great gift of losing all my money and even to this day what I don't have is when things are going badly I don't have a thought that do you know what I don't need this I could I could stop working now because I couldn't I still need mm. you know I don't have enough money to to stop working I don't have any pension and so being not very well off carries me through much easier the, the tougher moments. Keeps you focused. So if you could go back to that 22-year-old, Simon, who was looking forward to stepping onto a boat to go and become a professional fisherman, what would you say to him? Well, I'm not quite sure because at half of it I'd say, well, do what you want because you'll enjoy it and come out. And that was 1985. So the other, the other half of it would said, cut your hair, put a suit on, go to the city and bang on stockbrokers' doors saying, I think I can sell stuff until one of them gives you a job. Because that's, that's what some people I knew did. And well, they earned a lot of money and then they didn't. So I guess most of them have been on a similar uh, journey to you. There's that yin yang. There's, there's one character on each of your shoulders, Simon, at all times. Yes. <laughs> and where do you find your inspiration? Uh, I'm a huge podcast listener. <laughs> I listen to hours and hours of podcasts uh, each Brilliant. week. And of course, when I used to commute to Cornwall, I had many more hours doing. So that that's one of the things that I really like. And I love the sort of mathematics of the website marketing. Okay. The, the, the examining trends and working and, and working out, you know, following the data, not following what you think, because so often, in fact, more often than not, what you think is not true. When you have a thesis that, oh, I think people are booking earlier now or later, 
when you measure it, you're nearly always that's nearly always not the case. It's just a feeling you've got. So I, I, I love squeezing the data and spotting spotting which property is doing really well, why are they doing well, trying to work it out, and spotting the ones that aren't doing so well and, you know, taking action to try and fix it, which is a sort of, nowadays, that's a, instead of an art of marketing, it's a sort of mathematical puzzle. It's been great, Simon, having you on the Evolve to Succeed podcast. Thank you. Thank you, Warren. It's been a pleasure. And if people want to learn more about you, uh, where can they go? Oh, they can go to rumseyofsandbanks.co.uk. Brilliant. Perfect, Simon. It's great, as I say, to have had you as a guest. Thanks, Warren. We'll see you soon. I really admire Simon's ability to shift perspectives and how his understanding of customers' wants and needs, no doubt honed by his years of experience in sales have led him to disrupt in the holiday rentals industry. His story is one of clever adaptation to his environment and work, and the result is a quick thinking and astute business person. If you want further access to insightful content, details of our webinars, and inspiration, then please do go to evolvemembers.com, where you can register for free to be a supporter and member of the Evolve community. You'll also learn there more about our peer groups, and coaching services that Evolve runs and operates. And if you're based in Paul and Bournemouth, there's also details at evolvemembers.com of the lovely co-working space that we've recently launched in Ashley Cross. I hope you've enjoyed this episode, and if so, please do rate, review, and subscribe to future episodes. I look forward to you joining me again next week, and thank you for listening.